Hi, I'm Dawn. And I'm Ashabi. Welcome, Welcome to Beyond Queer Stories. Where we feature a storyteller from the community every week to get to know them and hear about their experiences beyond sexual orientation and gender identity. Hey, so welcome to a new episode of Beyond Queer Stories. Today we have Gnome with us. Gnome's an agender queer person with roots in Christianity and more recently in the Episcopal Church. They served as a youth minister and now work as a mitigation specialist in death penalty cases. Gnome has studied religion and specifically comparative Christianity in seven countries. Their writing can be found at transjesus.wordpress.com and they also play guitar in the Just Luckies. So welcome, Noam. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. Thank you. <laughs> so to kind of start off the discussion, I want to ask, what identities do you feel most influence your experiences? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I feel that just the word agender is the most accurate for me. I really don't feel that I have a gender, mm-hmm. but I also feel really close to transness, and especially since I've been kind of more physically transitioning, I feel closer to that word. So those two are big. Um, I used to not really like the word Christian just because it has a lot of negative connotations. But now I feel like I more want to step into it and kind of help redefine what that word means for people. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your work as a mitigation specialist. Can you tell us kind of what that is, what that means you do? So, okay, so I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I didn't really study the legal field at all, but I ended up working for this lawyer. And basically what we do is try to understand why people might have done a horrible thing that would warrant the death penalty, like in a federal or state case. Mm -hmm. So what we do is try to investigate that person's life history and the history of their family Mm -hmm. and figure out where they're coming from and what experiences they might have had. It's different than like the prison abolition movement, but they're kind of parallel. So what we try to do is not prove that someone's guilty or innocent, but rather just show that they're a human being that doesn't deserve to be killed by the government. So a lot of people feel like if someone is innocent, they shouldn't receive the death penalty. That seems obvious. But when it comes to someone who's guilty or someone who's admitted to a crime, they might Mm -hmm. feel differently. So what we try to do is just show them that, yes, someone might have done X, Y, and Z, but you have to look at why they were in that situation in the first Mm -hmm. place. There's a lot of psychology behind it. Yeah, it's a lot of psychology and it's a lot of like, well, okay, that person might have been gang affiliated, but like, what does that really mean? Does that mean that they just lived on a particular block or does that mean that they were forced to join that gang because of where they grew up or um, maybe they weren't actually gang affiliated, but that just was like tacked onto their charge. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's everything like that. Yeah, that's really yeah. fascinating. You know, we both have like mental health backgrounds, so like your comment about the psychology piece is really interesting because our actions are all built up from all our previous experiences, previous traumas, all of that's related. And I feel like a lot of times when people get the death penalty, they're very dehumanized. Yeah. And I didn't even realize that that was a job that someone does to like actually find out who they are as a person and humanize that person and not just make them the crime that they did. And actually there was a recent case where someone asked the state 
to impose death. Mm-hmm. So that person was um, obviously dealing with some mental illness and requested the death penalty. Oh, wow. Which is very confusing to me because if someone is suicidal, what you try to do is save their life, not just go along with their suicidality mm-hmm. in, my, in my understanding. So when it comes to the death penalty, we really don't approach it in a humane way. And the point is not to say like, oh, mentally ill people are violent, but it's just to say, you don't know what someone's dealing with necessarily just from the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that comparison of like when someone is suicidal, the goal is to help them, right, and address that issue. And if someone's requesting the death penalty, like what does that mean about what they're going through and how they're handling what's happening to them? Yeah. It's really interesting. Do you think that um, with the like job you're doing right now, that there's some instances where you, I don't even want to know, I don't want to say it, but like that you like approve of that like are there some instances where you're like this person can't be around people like at all or this person shouldn't even be like in a jail around people at all like are there some instances where you're like even though your job is to humanize that person do you understand or find cases where that person clearly isn't that sounds really bad, but like, <laughs> like I'm just thinking in my head, like this is this this job is just like like I would be so exhausted, like after a certain point. Yeah. Well, you know, like Dylan Roof was just sentenced I was to death. Literally, thinking about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, like in that I, case. Yeah, I think there are cases that would be like extremely difficult to mitigate. Mm-hmm. I would say, because yeah. it's like what that person did is so extremely horrible that yeah it's just difficult mm-hmm. to mitigate what they did so personally i don't believe that like the state will use the death penalty well and actually they have shown through many studies that the death penalty the way it's applied is so institutionally racist that you can't even use that as a mitigating factor because if you used racism in the process as a mitigating factor, they would never be able to impose death. Mm. So it's like... Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So, for example, like, if someone committed a crime, like a person of color committed a crime and there was an all-white jury, and that person was sentenced to death for their crime, you can't argue in court that racism played a role in that sentence because the system is so institutionally racist Mm -hmm. that you can't even use that as a mitigating factor because it would basically like uh, invalidate all these death sentences. Mm -hmm. Which it would cover like the majority of the sentences. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I explained that. No, no, that makes sense. (laughs) You explained it very well. So actually I was thinking about also like the shooter at the synagogue Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess personally there are some cases that I wouldn't want to work on Mm -hmm. because it would just Mm -hmm. be too it would be too hard Mm -hmm. for me personally yeah but at the end of the day like I still don't believe that the death penalty is right Mm -hmm. so I think it's so complex especially when you think of cases like that where it's an obvious hate crime Mm -hmm. and you know the hate comes from 
the society that we live in and yeah. the stigma that we're taught our whole lives. And how do you add that complex layer to this terrible action that someone did? Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds like a really challenging job and really fascinating at the same time. Yeah. It's interesting, (laughs) but I understand your point. Like the reality is people do horrible things. So we have to figure out as a society how to deal with that. Yeah. But I do agree with what you said about like explaining why, like you can't have a death penalty and also call out racism at the same time, I guess, because of the fact that if you even like, I'm assuming probably accurately that like a lot of trials and a lot of um, judgment that's passed is not like fair. So a lot of these things that we see in the news, like obviously it's based off the society that we live in, like in your job and in what you do, do you have to like, it's obviously too late for them if they've already like done it, but like, do you have to go back and see or if these people are still like on death row like potentially do you have to go back and see like do they actually deserve to be here and like when you do do you end up making a difference like changing that like Mm -hmm. sometimes um a couple of the cases since i've been working for this group have been um deauthorized which means the government decided not to pursue the death penalty Mm -hmm. so that's like best case scenario so that's always exciting yeah yeah at since I've been working, which hasn't been super long, mm-hmm. we haven't had a case end up in the death penalty. Okay. So it, it, it's a little complicated because sometimes the best case scenario is life without parole, mm-hmm. which is obviously not yeah. a very mm-hmm. positive outcome if you look at it mm-hmm. without context. But in the context of like saving that person's life, mm-hmm. it is a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. It makes me think of the cases we hear about too, where people are tried and found guilty for things they didn't even do and how yeah. much that impacts someone. And then adding the layer of the racist institution of the whole prison system and harsher yeah. sentencing and just all of that complexity to it. And when you add the death penalty on top of that, it's really scary to think about all those pieces together. Yeah. 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 What's your um, background in? So I actually studied comparative religion and comparative culture. So I went to this like weird international hippie school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's called Long Island University Global, but we all call it Global College. So I studied abroad a lot Mm -hmm. and I was doing ministry before this job. um, And then I kind of got burned out, which I'll get into all that. Um, But... Yeah, so my background is not necessarily in, like, legal Mm -hmm. work, Mm -hmm. but um, there's a lot of overlap between, like, pastoral work and um, active listening and interviewing techniques. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Okay. So how did those two worlds come together and, like, transition you into this legal side? Yeah, so I... um, I was running like a small youth ministry program and I wanted to kind of transition careers. And actually one of my friends linked me up with this lawyer. So that's how I ended up getting that job, which isn't a very exciting story. But since then, I feel like it's just really clicked. So it's been positive. Well, it's about time to transition into your story. Cool. 
Okay, I gotta think of where to start. So I didn't grow up in a religious family at all. Actually, my mom always says that she's like a godless heathen and she thinks it's hilarious. Um, And that she raised us all to be godless heathens. (laughs) (laughs) But like ever since I was a kid, I felt this weird urge to like go to church and go to synagogue with my friends. So I was doing that when I was a kid. And then I was just randomly going to churches like here and there. But since I didn't grow up in church, I didn't really know where to go or like what the different churches were. Like I didn't really know the difference between a Catholic church versus like an evangelical, like I wouldn't have known. And then I went to college for one year at like a small liberal arts school and I had a terrible year (laughs) and everything just kind of fell apart. And then I left school for a year and I was just working. And then I ended up going back to school at global college, which is the international school. So I was in, the first year I was in Taiwan, Thailand, India, and Turkey, and like a comparative religion year. And by that time, I had realized that I was trans, but I didn't, I hadn't really settled into like what that meant. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to figure it out. And I've been out as some form of queer since I was like 15, which was super fun in high school, (laughs) but that's a different story. (laughs) Um... So I was traveling and I was studying religion in all these different places. And I ended up going to like Catholic churches in each country. And it's so interesting how the Catholic church has adapted itself. Like in Taiwan, all the Catholic churches are like similar architecture to temples or they're super, super modern, like hyper modern. And then in Thailand, it's like, you'll have shrines to Mary that look almost identical to shrines that you would see at like a Thai Buddhist temple. So it's really, it was really interesting for me to see like the way the church adapted itself or allowed people to kind of mix those traditions, or I guess just tolerated it. I don't know exactly (laughs) what happened. Um, And then when I was in Turkey, I thought about converting to Islam, but I felt that at least in the Turkish context, like I wouldn't have been accepted as a queer person. So I didn't convert at that time. And then the next year I was in China for the whole year and I was studying evangelical Christianity in China, which is a big like political mess in a lot of ways. So I would go out and interview people, um, who were Christian and who were specifically like evangelical Christians who were part of the underground illegal church. And they would tell me stories of their parents in the cultural revolution, like having to drink blood or being dragged through the streets or having their heads shaved. That was one of the things that they would do to nuns would be like taking off their habits and shaving their heads. So I was hearing all these stories, but then the people I was meeting with were so faithful and so committed to their faith, even though the churches they were going to were illegal. And if that church had been raided, they probably would have gone to prison. So it it was just 
really fascinating. And then I was also attending one of the legal churches. So I would be there on Sundays. But the interesting thing is like in China, um, foreign nationals and like Chinese citizens can't attend the same church service because they don't like to have missionaries there trying to convert people, which is totally understandable. Mm-hmm. And so you'll get these bizarre situations where like one Sunday we were in church and a Chinese citizen came in to the service and the pastor actually had to ask them to leave because if they had allowed that person to stay, the whole congregation would have potentially been shut down. So it's just, it's very like different than it is here. Why would it have been shut down? Um, Just because according to like the regional laws, Mm -hmm. you couldn't have mixing of like foreigners and Chinese people in the service. So they would have their service in a different room. So it would be like foreigners in one room and then Chinese citizens in a different room. But you're learning the same thing? Yeah. In the same church. (laughs) So Okay. It's a little (laughs) yeah, it's a really different (laughs) context. And the other interesting thing about that church was like the pastor of the church was a Southern Baptist dude from the US like classic Southern Baptist, <laughs> like a fire and brimstone kind of guy. Wow. And then everyone else in the church was like from Zimbabwe because there were so many like African PhD students mm-hmm. at the university. So it's just a really interesting like group of people that were there. And I was there and I was studying Christianity and I was meeting all these different people. And then one Sunday, you know, they do the altar calls because it was like Southern Baptist style. So one Sunday I just was there and they did an altar call and I had an experience of being saved, which is so weird because I was like this total like queer freak in this church, like run by these Southern Baptists and like African PhD students in China. And, um, so I went up and I, they like prayed over me and it was a whole thing. Um, yeah. So after that, I considered myself to be converted to Christianity. So sorry, what exactly is an altar call? Like So, yeah. So an altar call is like the preacher will say, they'll preach probably for like 30 or 40 minutes. <laughs> um, and then they'll say, if anyone feels like they want to confess their sins and be converted or like if you feel called to give your life to God this is the time for you to come up and like we'll pray over you and it's considered that you are like saved by the Holy Spirit so I had that experience which was totally bizarre what was for it me like? it was like because I had been studying all these different religions mm-hmm. and you know how I grew up like Christianity was like such a joke in my family and still is which is funny (laughs) so as I was having the experience I was like is this real Mm -hmm. but it just it's kind of like falling in love even if you don't want to fall in love with that person and you're like "Mm, I don't know like I could get hurt (laughs) you can't really like stop yourself from falling in love so that's how I would describe it 
So you fell in love with God? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Which is so corny. So and like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's no, the corniest fine. thing ever. So then after that, I was like, okay, I think I want to go into ministry because I felt called to like do something with my relationship with God. So after that, I came back to the U.S. and I started attending the Episcopal Church, which is like, it's more traditional in the service. So if you went to an Episcopal Church service, it would be like Catholic Mass, basically. But the church ordains like queer people and women, and we have more progressive policies than the Catholic Church in a lot of areas. And we also have a strong theology of incarnation. Mm. So like we do the Eucharist every Sunday, um, which is like, you know, bread and wine. So I started the formation process to enter the Episcopal priesthood, which is a really long process. And everything was like chugging along. And then in February, one of my friends passed away from suicide. And it kind of like jolted me out of this honeymoon phase of like being in love with God. (laughs) Um, Because after he died, I was like, well, what the fuck? Because he was a really good person and just honestly like the sweetest person. And um, he was just lovely. So, but he really struggled for a long time and, Yeah, so after he passed away, I kind of had a crisis of faith. And so I stepped away from the formation process for the priesthood. So I'm still attending church, and I still consider myself a Christian or a person of faith. But I think it's like any relationship, it changes over time. And sometimes you get hurt, and things don't go the way you want them to go. So that's kind of my story of faith. <laughs> yeah. So fascinating. And yeah. I'm thinking a couple of things right now. Like one of them is debating which one I want to ask you first. So the first one I'll ask, during that whole process of like the international travel and all that, I know you said you came out when you were in high school. Were you out during that whole process as well? Or did you have to like not tell certain people? What was that experience like of being out throughout all of that? Yeah, I was like selectively out. Okay. <laughs> um, so in the context of that church in China, I was like not, I was out if people asked me, but I didn't bring it up, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't know how I feel about that looking back. Like I wish I was more visible in that context because I didn't see a lot of other queer people there. But at the time, I just, I wasn't really out there. Um, but was I was there out to like... Was there a risk to being out in certain places you traveled? Um, yeah, I would say so. I think also like I wasn't... It was just a very weird <laughs> time in my life because like we moved every week or every two weeks. So even if I had been out to everyone, it's like I would have had to come out nonstop over and over to like Turkish villagers who like I didn't speak Turkish. (laughs) So (laughs) it just in the context of the time, it didn't make any sense for me to be out. 
But again, it's like so complicated. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did um, your family fare to this like new loving God version? <laughs> it's so funny, like, because when I came out as queer, they just like really didn't care that much. Yeah. So it's funny because I always say I had to like come out as a Christian. Which is so stupid. the Bible. What? Was that harder for you? Yeah. It was like it's super so weird and yeah. it was very uncomfortable. How did your mom take it? She. You're not the heathen I raised you to be. Yeah, no, like that's a direct quote. <laughs> she was like, I raised you to be a godless heathen. Wow. <laughs> um, but it's so funny because like they were also uncomfortable about um my transness Mm. so it's like there's a lot of layers like there's Mm. me being queer as far as like who i'm dating Mm. there's my faith life and then there's my gender Mm -hmm. so it's like three separate spheres um but all related so yeah okay (laughs) is that the order of kind of their comfort level is like the sexual orientation is the easiest and the transness next and then like the religion is the hardest for them yeah or i would say like transness and religiousness are about equal okay yeah but they are a lot better now i think it was just like the initial shock Shock. of like what (laughs) (laughs) yeah because something i found myself thinking is like your narrative is kind of like the opposite of what we typically hear right like people grow up in religion and then they have to come out and Mm -hmm. that's so hard and they're not accepted yeah and you didn't grow up in religion but chose religion yeah and came out as queer and trans and all of those identities as well and connect with religion outside of your family yeah interesting yeah so where are you right now with all of this then like, where would you say you're at with, like, being a God lover and, like, encompassing that in the fact that you work with death penalty cases? Because yeah. that just seems like, not, it doesn't seem like it contradicts, but it seems like they fit very well together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, like, complicated because, like, after my friend passed away, I feel like my relationship with God, like, really changed. Mm-hmm. And my beliefs also changed significantly so I'm still trying to like sort it out but I feel like I have a very like midwestern work ethic like (laughs) I like my work to be like useful Mm -hmm. so I feel like my work is useful and so I feel good about that Mm -hmm. I think it's like my faith is so personal to me because it is something that like I chose so I think it's just in process. Like I feel very settled in my gender, but I feel less settled in my faith. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I was going to ask with you being like out loud about like your faith, have you been able to like find other queer people who are as out loud and the fact that you went to church and also synagogue, like how does that also fare? Yeah. With all of you. So, yeah. (laughs) So like my, Dad is Jewish. Stop, so, my dad. Yeah. Twins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like we, when we were growing up, I don't know if you had the same experience, but like we did like Hanukkah and Passover. 
you know, it's like yeah. very Judaism yeah. light. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I still consider it like an important part of my heritage because mm-hmm. that's my dad's whole entire family. Mm-hmm. I think my feelings about like being a person of faith in queer spaces is like exactly like you said, most people who have grown up in a faith or in a religion, like they were really deeply traumatized or hurt by that experience. So not that I keep it to myself, but I try to like really not impose my beliefs Mm -hmm. in those spaces. But I actually do know a fair number of religious trans people and queer people Mm -hmm. like we're out there, but you kind of just have to like look a little harder. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Makes me think, do you have any stories about experiences of coming out to queer people as having faith? Well, (laughs) it just sounds so funny hearing like coming out as like a religious. I know. It's like so goofy. It's hard sometimes to like feel people out similarly the way we do with queer identity, Mm -hmm. right? Like it'll drop little hints like how are they going to respond? And imagine it might be similar in terms of like queer people and like seeing how they feel about faith. Yeah, I mean, I also think that I've had, like, overall a very positive experience in religious communities, with some exceptions, which, like, I can also talk about. But I think that's, like, a very privileged position to be coming from. So I do try to listen for, like, little hints here and there that people are more open to talking about it before I (laughs) come out, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's, like... Yeah, a lot of people, like, they don't even want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. Like, I was listening to this other podcast, and the person was saying that they don't even like to hear the word Christian because they were, like, in conversion therapy, and it was just this... What? Is it unerased? Is that the podcast you're talking about? No, I got to think of it. Um, I think it's called Feeling Weird. Okay. They have this really, like, funny theme song that I like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they were saying, like, the minute they hear the word Christian, they're like, no, like, Mm -hmm. they shut down because their experience was so traumatizing. And I totally get that. And so people generally know that I'm Christian, like, if they know me for more than, like, a month. But, yeah, other, I mean, in most contexts, like, I just don't bring it up. Well, your last part of the comment of, like, not bringing up makes me think of, like, I've tried to make a more conscious effort, like, in the last year or two, I'd say, to surround myself with people I could be my whole self with. Yeah. So I think, like, that last comment, like, brings me back to that, like, how hard it can be to find people you can be all of who you are with. Yeah, that's so real. Yeah, if like you feel that sometimes like you have to close off certain parts of yourself around people um I think I used to feel that way more but I had more like traditional beliefs I guess and then in the past year like things are just like shifting for me so it feels a little bit different but it's also like I try to show my faith in like how I live not necessarily like what I say about God if that makes sense like I'd rather 
show people my faith through my actions and how I take care of other people than like come into the room and be like, Hey, do you guys love Jesus or what? <laughs> you know, like that is just an, not my personality. So, yeah. Yeah. Are you losing your question? Yeah, I am. It really sucks. Like, I'm, really, I'm really mad at myself. Yeah, I'm like, I literally had like three hours of sleep today. So oh, I've been no. like up for 24 hours. That's so it's brutal. Been, like, it's not you. It's definitely me. <laughs> um so even though this is like pseudo heavy like our topics right now how do you de-stress from like being question. in such like a heavy like like environment almost all the time like with that penalty and like working with cases like that like how do you end up like not focusing on that 24 7 because i feel yeah. like that's all that would like like engulf my mind and now I'll just look at cases and be like this person shouldn't have died this person shouldn't have done this you should understand xyz abc and I'd be like wired all the time so like how do you deal with that like yeah (laughs) I mean that's definitely a challenge which like I'm sure you both know working in mental health field is like you always feel like you could do more Mm -hmm. like there's always more work to be done Mm -hmm. so yeah playing in a band helps (laughs) like having that creative outlet is really good and then I'm also getting my like yoga teacher certification which is exciting (laughs) because yeah like I sit and type all day so I'm like you know at my computer hunched over like Mm -hmm. t-rex style (laughs) um so then to go out and just be more present in my body helps me a lot yeah how long have you been in your band for? I've been in this band almost three years, which is crazy. But I was in another band before when I lived in Washington State. And yeah, it's just good to have that creative outlet. Like, I feel like as grownups, we're not really encouraged to like have fun mm-hmm. or like play or like mess around. So I think music is one way that. What do you do in the band? I play guitar. How long have you been playing guitar for? Uh, <laughs> like 10 or 12 years. Oh, wow. But it's been on and off. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you've been in like, how many bands have you been in though? Um, Not that many, like three or four. Yeah. So you're getting like practice every single time. Yeah. Do they play like different things? Is it like, do you, are you like at a rock band or like at a symphony the next time? Like how, yeah. <laughs> like what other like, like genres do you play? So when I was in Washington state, I was in like a punk band basically. Mm-hmm. So it was a very different style than now. And we call ourselves like twang punk, the band I'm in now, <laughs> which basically is like, it's elements of country and elements of punk mm-hmm. and like elements of indie rock so i usually just tell people we're an indie band but you know <laughs> i like twang punk more yeah I like sit down and explain it it's more exciting to say but it does require like i need to like <laughs> explain it <laughs> yeah yeah so since you're dealing with all these cases are you dealing with cases outside of chicago yeah so how so, does that work yeah so illinois actually does not impose the death penalty so like if you're convicted of murder or like whatever crime illinois state would not execute you 
but if the federal government was prosecuting you, you could still be executed. So like if you killed someone in Illinois Mm -hmm. or you did something that like warrants the death penalty and the federal government decided to prosecute you, you could be executed. So we have very few like Illinois cases because the state doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, use the death penalty. Um, Other states do, and they're way more like aggressive about it. Texas is a state that people usually associate with the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it kind of depends on the case. Okay. Yeah. Curious, how do you do your research to people? It sounds like yeah <laughs> interesting you like you said you're trying to get more of their life history and what are their experiences like what do you do to get that information so a lot of what I have done is like records collection so what that means is like all the medical history of their extended family and like constructing um, family trees for like three and four generations out and anything from finding like immigration records, um, psychiatric hospital records is a big one. So you kind of have to like, you don't necessarily know what you're looking for and until you know that you need it and then you have to figure out how to get it. So it's kind of like you would get someone's death certificate and then you would see their cause of death was suicide. So then you're like, oh, well, they probably spent time in a mental health institution. So then you have to go figure out where did they live and what hospitals were around and, you know, when were they alive? And it's more in-depth research in that way. So it's time consuming, but it's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Do you ever have to like interview the families at all with this? I am like just starting out with interviews, but we try to interview everyone who is like in any way relevant. So it could be a family member, it could be a former teacher, a friend, or, you know, anyone who might have come into contact with that person. Yeah, so I'd imagine getting a phone call saying, I'm working on this case, and yeah. I'd like to talk to you about this person can be surprising to someone. Is that how that goes? Like, you don't, like, give them any forewarning or anything? Um, usually, we just go find people in person. But sometimes it's phone calls. I mean, mitigation is a field that like a lot of people have never heard of, Mm -hmm. including myself up to (laughs) a little while ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But mitigation happens for all types of cases. Like juvenile life without parole is another big one. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mitigation is really important to a lot of different types of cases. But I don't think it's like super well known mm-hmm. outside of the legal field. How would you describe it? I would describe it as storytelling and kind of understanding why people do what they do mm-hmm. or why people are in the circumstance that they're in. And a lot of that is just telling their story and letting them tell their own story, mm-hmm. which a lot of times people just haven't had the opportunity to do. So. I love that way of describing it. Yes. Great. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it wraps right into everything we're doing. I was just going to yeah. say, it's like it's a very good closer. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have like, grabbed it up better. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your Yeah, background. thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, is there anything that you want to plug or put out there for people to check out? Shameless plug time. 
couple. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have a blog, which I sometimes write on. It's <laughs> transjesus.wordpress. And then also uh, my band, The Just Luckies, come see us. We're Chicago locals. Um, and we're on all the social media at The Just Luckies. Um, yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Queer Stories. Also, make sure to check out the creator of our podcast music, B. Steadwell. She's an incredible queer artist from DC, and you can catch her music at bsteadwell.com. We'll talk to everyone next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.